welcome to Friday's edition of the IndieLive.radio daytime show and I'm here, Valerie Gold, I'm here with Marlene Halliday. Good morning, good morning everyone. We've got three great guests for you today. Um, First of all, we're going to be talking to author and uh, crime fiction author Alan Martin and his wife Vivian Martin, who's a writer too, who specialises more in travel and articles in the and various magazines so we're going to hear all about their writing uh, shortly and in the second half of the show um, we will be talking to Mike Blackshaw from the Edinburgh Yes Hub. So um, good morning, uh, good morning Vivian, good morning Alan. Good morning, good morning and thank you for having us. Hi. Absolutely delighted to have you here. Um, we're pleased to be here, thank you. We were actually talking to Ruth Wishart recently and we were talking specifically about books and book festivals and how that has affected um, how the COVID-19 pandemic has had quite an impact on book festivals and how they've uh, moved online. So how has that affected your ability to do your job and do your writing? I mean, I suppose being an author is a fairly solitary occupation anyway, Alan. How how are you and Vivian coping in these difficult times? Well, to be honest, we've we've not found them too difficult personally, because as you say, writing is a solitary occupation. We can just sit down at home and get on with it. what we do miss is is the ability to travel about, and that's particularly affected Vivian's work um, in in writing about places and their history and their ambience and so on. It's it's not so easy to do when you're not there. But for me, um, there's been plenty of things to do. Uh, for instance, I I was asked by uh, Ken McDonald, the publisher of I Scott magazine, to uh, write a, a novella featuring Angus Blue. Uh, my my detective inspector uh, and how he copes during the lockdown. Oh, so oh, it's, called, right. um, it's called a fatal contagion, okay. uh, and it features Angus Blue and a case of a, a body being found in a camper van in Oban in the middle of the lockdown. So um, that had oh. to be written and then edited, checked, proofread, and and so on. So well, is that finished then? Oh yes, that was that was uh, given out to. Uh, subscribers of iScott magazine uh, as a a free gift uh, and it's now available from uh, a website called Pocket Mags. uh, You know I'm a a subscriber of um, iScott magazine but I'm terrible for not reading. I get deluged with emails I must scroll back and because I'm I'm, as soon as you said that I thought I can't wait to read that and it sounds like I've already been sent it and I've missed it. Are, are you a print or a print or digital subscriber? I'm a digital subscriber. Ah, in that case, you will probably have received an email telling you how you can get a copy. On on what pocket marks? You won't have been sent one. That's the print subscribers, but you uh-huh. will have received an email that will tell you how to get one. Excellent. So and I'm that's not the as daft as I think. Then that's fine. So um. Let's tell our listeners a bit more about your work. Um, Marlene, is a, you're talking about the novella um, involving uh, this very fascinating character, uh, Inspector, de- uh, Detective Inspector or Inspector? Yes. Detective um, Inspector, that's right. Detective Inspector Angus Blue. Marlene is currently a 
working away. She's enjoying your first a novel, which is called The Pete Dead. I read that last year. Yeah. I read that actually when you came on a, the daytime show before, about over a year ago now. Oh, right. Yeah. I have just finished your, your latest book, The Dead of Jura. So ah. tell us a bit about a, how you came to invent this character of Angus Blue. Oh, no, um, that, that happened over quite a long period of time because uh, I started work on the, the Pete Dead in about um, 2013, 2012, something like that. So it's, it, that took quite a long time to develop. And um, once it was written, uh, I got some advice from uh, a well-known author, Doug Johnson. Uh, and the first thing he said was, uh, you need to take 50,000 words out of it <laughs> because it was far too long. And uh, the next task was to cut it down to uh, uh, under 100,000 words. But where did Angus Blue come from? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, he came out of my head somewhere, uh, maybe just crawled out when I wasn't looking. Uh, some of his background is a bit like mine. For instance, I, I've had uh, my father's family came originally in the mid-19th century from Colonsey uh, and I've got relatives, uh, did have relatives on Jura. Uh, in fact some of the, the mentions in uh, the dead of Jura to, to relatives there of Angus Blue actually are my relatives. So uh, I've got connections albeit distantly with those places. So that, that seemed a, nat a natural place to set the the first one. Plus, we we visit Isla uh, frequently. Uh, we try to get there at least once a year, and so we knew the place. And uh, uh, most of the uh, settings are pretty accurate. Uh, although we did have a meeting at the Celtic House um, shop in Isla in Beaumont uh, last year. And somebody did point out that there's a bit where the road goes left. And she said, no, no, just at that point, <laughs> right. the road goes right. So there are one or two inaccuracies in there, I'm afraid. Um, well, there's, now, so, there's, there's not sorry. many roads on Isla, is there? So I suppose everyone knows them absolutely precisely. Well, that, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. Uh, so whereas the Dead of Jura was, is kind of looking at the past, and uh, a crime that happened many years ago that people have been trying to suppress. Uh, the Dead of Jura, on the other hand, is about a crime that's happening right now, and it's more focused on, on present-day uh, situations. It's very contemporary, and it, it deals with some quite... Um... I'm, I'm, I'm choosing my words. have to choose my words. <laughs> Be very careful. Here, I don't want to give away anything, but it, it links. Um, there are some themes there and some storylines that are, um, shall we say, very similar to certain present day situations. So it's it's quite dodgy. I would have to say it's very daring. <laughs> it was actually written before um, any such revelations that uh, came out later. So it was actually not, it's not based on real events. It kind of imagined what real events might happen. And then my goodness, they happened. So uh, that's so you're quite, you had a, a sort of presentiment, a sort of brand seer type 
<laughs> yes, exactly. I was sitting in the dark one day and it came upon me. That's right. <laughs> I, 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 Alan, what, I was intrigued by the surname Blue. Is that, is that like an anglified version of a Gaelic surname? I'm very glad you asked me that question, Marlene, because, um, yes, what happened to many of the Highlanders and Islanders when they moved to uh, the, the mainland for jobs or when they encountered the census takers uh, was that the census taker, for instance, would say to the man, what's your name? And he would say, Machandruch. <laughs> and the, the census taker would find it very difficult. He would ask the man to spell it, but of course the man couldn't spell it because he knew how to say it. What more did he need? So in fact, many Highlanders, when they came down to the central belt looking for work, changed their names in order to make them more accessible to, to uh, Anglophone speakers. Uh, so blue, for instance, um, white, green, um, a lot of uh, other names were oh, okay. in the same in the same variety, and there are in fact blues on there were blues on a colony in the nineteenth century. So it is there are there are records that uh, you know I came across them when I was doing the the genealogy stuff. Yes, yes. Yeah. So 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 in in originally would it have been Gorham or? Leith or something. Well, it could have been Mahunya. <laughs> a lot of Highland names were quite complicated in their structure and, and very difficult of pronunciation for the non-Highlander. Um, but Vivian knows more Gaelic than me, so um, she might want to comment on that. No, no, not really. It's just it's insane in the way that a lot of people who, when they came to the United States from Russia or from other, you know, Eastern European countries in particular, their names were incomprehensible to the English speakers in the States. And so they changed their names or they anglified them in a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was a bit like that for some people in the Highlands. Unless you had a, a much easier name to say, mm. it was easier to for other people and to relate to other people to give you a, a name that's easy to easy to say. Yeah. 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 So um, for any budding authors out there um, to encourage them, how do you go about doing your research, Alan? Because that's something that when I was reading the book, I was really amazed by the level of detail about, you know, crime scene procedures and um, ballistics and general, um, you know, how police forces of different types operate. I, I just wondered, do you, do you, sort of approach police officers? Do you have friends that help you with the specialist knowledge? The, uh, I think there are sort of three answers to that. Um, one is for the places, go there yourself. There's, yeah. no, there's no other way to do yeah. it. You, yeah, you can go down a road looking on Google Maps and so on, but there's, no, there's, there's nothing better than actually being in the place. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the places, being on the spot is, is the only way to do it, I think. Um, you can't get away with what Bram Stoker did with Dracula, taking it all from a guidebook. Um, the, I didn't Sorry? I didn't know that that's what Bram Stoker did. He yes, just... all, the, all the Transylvanian stuff came out of the, I think it was Baedeker's Guide, oh, wow. to, guide to Romania or Hungary or whatever. Yeah, um, 
So that's the first thing, the setting. The next thing is, is the, the procedures, and that is to, to ask people. And we have a very good uh, friend who is a former detective uh, who has been very helpful to us in terms of, of making sure that the activities of the police were, were plausible. And I say plausible because uh, I know that you can read some crime books where the level of detail uh, in terms of forensics or whatever gets to the point that you actually wish the story would get moving. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So what you don't strive for is absolute total accuracy, but for general plausibility and, and a, an approximation to accuracy because it's a story. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is, hey, the internet, you know, <laughs> you can find all sorts of things there. Um, so that's also a useful, a very useful source. You've got to be careful because some of it's not quite accurate, but it, it has opened up in a way that, that encyclopedias and so on haven't. It's opened up a, a whole new possibility for doing research but as I say you've got to be careful yeah yeah and I expect it works both ways because I think you know I, I was saying to you earlier Alan I'm a pretty avid crime mm. uh, fiction reader and it, I think it works both ways because on the one hand yeah you can get um, you get a bit bored almost because there's there's so much forensic you know or soccer kind yeah. of detail putting in on the other hand sometimes I'm reading a book or I'm watching something on the tv and I'm especially if it's a TV, I'm sitting saying to my husband, well, that, that wouldn't work. I mean, there's no way they would have just gone into that crime scene. I mean, look, yeah. I haven't even done. So kind of, you, it's kind of either too much or sometimes just, you know, a bit blasé about it and too little. Because, really. yes. you know, we all, we all think we're experts now on forensic analysis. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, do you have any favourite authors yourself in terms of particularly Scottish crime writing, Alan? Ooh, ooh, that's a difficult one. Um, I mean, I've been reading uh, Marion Todd recently, um, who was shortlisted for the McIlvanny Prize. Um, G.R. Halliday uh, is a good Scottish writer. Um, there are M.R. Um, Mackenzie. Uh, there are there are quite a few of them out there. There's a lot of a lot of good Scottish writers out there. That's that's um, you know. And that's where, you know, maybe there's a lot of competition too. So, it, you know, one day it will dawn on one of these Scottish writers that all they have to do is poison the others and uh, <laughs> that will clear the, clear, the, clear the ranks a little. So, uh, I mean, I... Is that, I, a, is that a half-formed plan you have, Alan? <laughs> <laughs> Three-quarters formed, three-quarters formed. <laughs> there's but, a lot of female, a lot of women authors. Um, in crime fiction, yes, that's Scotland, true. Anyway, yeah, I think that that's true. I think that's true. But I think there are a lot of the the majority of authors in general are female. Oh, really? Uh, that's just my impression. But when you look at things like the Booker Prize, for instance, uh, and you know, and, and Viv Vivian actually might be better on this because her work in the library would would, would might indicate whether there are more male or female authors. Okay. What do you think? We're going to be um, moving over to talk to Vivian uh, about her work shortly, but have you got anything you'd like to add about that, Vivian? Have you got particular um, favourites in crime fiction? 
I, yes, I probably, I, yes, I do. I do. I, I really enjoy Lynn Anderson's books. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember talking to Val McDermott once and saying that I found some of her books just a wee bit hard to take. And she said, oh, no, no, no. She, she just writes a little bit and it's your own imagination that fills in the gorier bits. But yeah. um, so I, I have a certain level of goriness I'm not too keen on. Yeah. Um, so I find, but working in the library, it's always surprised me that the vast number of readers for crime tend to be women and they can read anything and they're quite I remember one day quite an elderly woman came in and, and very kind of subdued clothing and she took this came to take this book out and you talk to the people when they come into the library and it was one book that I knew to be particularly gruesome <laughs> and I said oh now this book can be I haven't read it myself but I understand this book can be quite gruesome and she said yes I know my friend told me all about it <laughs> So I thought, okay, right. <laughs> um, so yes, and a lot of women are are the readers of crime, and they, and I think that's also the fact. There's a lot of women writers now coming in is is good too because yeah. it, it should work both ways. Yeah, it's it's interesting what what you said about the the sort of more gruesome side. I mean, it's a while back now, but there was a certain series of Val McDermott's that I. Oh, yeah. I probably saw them on the TV and then I got one out of the library and I just thought, oh, I don't want those images in my yeah. in my mm -hmm. head, actually. So <laughs> I stopped reading her and I'd, similarly, I've never really taken taken uh, read much of Joan Nesbo, you know, the Scandinavian yeah. um, crime yeah. writer. Same reason, absolutely mm -hmm. same reason. I thought, I just don't want... Because once something like that is in your head, yes. it's quite hard. Yeah, it's quite yeah. hard to, you know, get past it. But but having said that, Val McDermott is such a good writer, and and her her more recent books, I've read quite a few of them actually. They're they're not in that same kind of dark place uh, mm -hmm. quite so much. Is that Wild in the Blood series that was yeah. a bit made like that, wasn't yes. it? Yes, yeah. it, yeah. Was, yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah, I've met Joan Esbo. I met him at I well, I say mate. <laughs> he signed my book. <laughs> you've met him. You've met him. <laughs> He, he used to be a rock star, didn't he? He's very um, handsome. <laughs> um, but he um, he's Norwegian, isn't he? Um, he was here in Glasgow a few couple of years ago for the I Write Book Festival. Tell us about the book festivals. You would miss going to them, Alan and Vivian. Do you not miss travelling around and going to book festivals? Or yes, it, it's that's one of the casualties of the of the uh, present situation that. Um, Book festivals have, have by and large, well, have all had to go online. And that's made a big difference because the experience just isn't the same. Yeah. Um, you know, being in a room with, with a bunch of people and reading your work out and feeling the, the response to it, um, answering the questions on the spot, it's not the same. It's not the same in a Zoom meeting. Mm. Uh, there is a, a stiltedness and uh, it's just not there's no atmosphere I think mm. that's that's the problem and I think most writers will be looking forward very much to the day when you know even with masks and and, and at, a, at a distance you can get into a space with with some real people again yeah and then of course there's all the technical difficulties as well because um like I've I had signed up for a few events at the Wigtonshire Book Festival um, in actual fact, you didn't really. You could just go onto their 
YouTube and just watch it without yeah. it. But if you registered, they sent you a wee reminder so that you. Mm. So I listened to Helena Kennedy, you know, the QC, Baroness Helena Kennedy, and also Stuart Cosgrove about his book Cassius X about. Oh. about Muhammad Ali yeah. and, but I was also looking forward to one by Rosemary Goring oh. Queen of Scots and I, I was out somewhere and I came rushing home to watch it and here Sally Magnuson came on and went very sorry Rosemary's internet connection's down so oh. having it and that was it <laughs> and then it went off the air and I think they're going to do it at a um a future date but it was really yeah. disappointing so but um so have you participated in quite a few online events in terms of books alan uh just one or two uh just one or two we're working up to a a launch event for the dead of jura um it's obviously already been launched but um I'm going to have a, a chat with Marion Todd um, and with Sinead Francis from Thunderpoint Publishers, uh, and that'll be probably around the end of this month sometime. Okay, I'll, I'll look out for that then, I'll definitely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but not really, we've really concentrated on, on getting more writing done. Um, that's been, there's another problem I think, and that is that, that um, Authors read their works, and not every author is good at reading their works. Um, and when you see them reading it in a live space, that's a different matter. But when you see people reading online, uh, it's kind of kind of taking the uh, it's kind of taking the atmosphere off it. Intimacy, it's not the yeah, same. Yeah, that's right. And so the reading can sometimes be a little bit tedious, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. Um, so it's not every writer that can actually animate what they're reading. <laughs> so um, in terms of your writing, Vivian, um, you very much are concentrate on writing about historical matters and also about different parts of Scotland. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. I mean, my, my, my background is I, I studied history at university and I studied Scottish history at university for the reason that really we didn't get it at school and when I went to university it was to study French and German and I thought no actually I would really like to know more about my own country um, and that was kind of the spur to studying Scottish history and European history as well and when ISCOT started up and I came across a copy of it, I can't remember where and I thought oh no the good thing about iScot is it covers so much. It's not just, you know, a cookery magazine or a political magazine or a sporting magazine. It covers the whole range of what's going on in Scotland. So I sent in a couple of article suggestions to Ken McDonald and was very pleased when he said, yeah, go for it. Um, because for me, history is just so important. It's, it's everywhere. You look out your window and the houses out there are built that way because of a history. The stories behind who we are, the way we speak, the sort of education we had, everything about us depends on our history. And there was a lovely, well, a sad quote by the author Julian Barnes when he was talking about dementia. Uh -huh. we, we're made up of our memories. But if you start forgetting who you are, your past, your history, you actually stop being a full person. And I think that applies not just to individuals, but to countries as well. 
and that we need to know our past, we need to know why it's the way it is in order to understand ourselves as individuals, but also the country we live in. And so the past to me is vitally important to the present and the directions that we take in the future. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. we had a very interesting a talk about a month ago at Pensioners for Independence about Scottish history, touching mm-hmm. on some of the very things that you say there from mm-hmm. Elspeth King. Oh yes, oh. <laughs> yeah. you would know you're, you're going to know yes. Elspeth, won't you? I yeah. Would, yeah. No, I, I actually she's. I'm glad you mentioned her. She is one of the most amazing people I know, and I wrote a very long article in her called "Behind the Scenes at the Museum." And ah. it was, she was brilliant to interview. She is quite a character. Um, but what she was saying tied into so many of the things that I feel and I write about as well, because h- how do you preserve your past? How do you present your past? And, and whose past is it? Um, there's a, a quote, which I must admit I use quite often. It's a Japanese author called Haruki Murakami, where he talks about, and this, this is a quote, he says, robbing people of their actual history is the same as robbing them of part of themselves. It's a crime. Our memory is made up of our individual memories and our collective memories. If the collective memory is taken from us, and that's our history, if it's rewritten, we lose the ability to sustain our true selves. And to me, that just hits the nail on the head. But if we don't know why we have the beliefs we have, if we don't know why we speak and sound the way we sound, how you know, you you can't be a full human being. And I think Scotland's had this very difficult balance to strike. Um, one one sort of thing that isn't one hundred percent true. People say they never had Scottish history at school. Now. Scottish history was there and in fact I looked out my higher history paper from the 1970s and there's 14 questions on Scottish history but when I was at school that wasn't part of the curriculum that our teachers chose so it really depended at school when your teacher yeah what they wanted to teach you what they were happy with what they were familiar with so the Scottish history in theory was there but it wasn't really being taught. And I don't think the resources were there for the teachers either. So it took a long time to to get round. Because like most people, I mean, my knowledge of Scottish history was, well, Mary Queen of Scots got her head chopped off and the Battle of Bannockburn, you know, yeah. anything else in between kind of went. So that's, and I, 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 the reason that linking it with place, another of my favourite authors from a long time ago, who, oh, what's his name, Paul Gallico, he wrote the oh. Hiram Holiday stories, and Hiram Holiday was televised a long time ago. I remember Hiram Holiday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's right. yes, an unlikely hero, and in a way the televised television didn't really totally reflect what was in the book but one of the big things in the Hiram Holiday books is that wherever he went and this ties in with what Alan said about place wherever Hiram Holiday goes he stands here he can can feel the history of the place rising up through the paving stones or whatever um and I think places in themselves are a real reflection of the history of a country as well so Mm. so when you travel you've actually reached every place has got a story. Every place has got something that's interesting, something to tell. So that history and travel, I think, just go so well together. Mm. And coming back to Elspeth, (laughs) so do museums and how they present local history. um, And who, again, who's decided what's worth preserving? 
exactly. and so often in the past what has been preserved on our behalf mm. ostensibly has not really been our history and no. not really what makes us the people the, the history of the, the the ruling class and the yes. rich yeah. and yeah. what is it to say the his history is written by the victors yes that's right yeah. So yeah. that's true in terms, not just in terms of war and so on, but also in terms of social history. Mm. I mean, Elspeth is, was a, is a, not just was, but a great champion of social history of the working people, isn't she? Yes. And also, yeah. you talk about, you know, collective memory and things that are written out, eh, the invisibility of women in history as well, the role that women played. Um, I mentioned earlier that I was had signed up for an event with Rosemary Goring and she's got a really fascinating book you'll probably have seen it called Her, Her Story I think it's oh, yeah. that's terrible I've got a terrible memory but basically it's about the role of women in Scottish history and it's 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 not like a, a big long treatise it's it's a whole lot of separate it's great to dip into it's a whole lot of separate mm -hmm. um, articles and little snippets from documents dating from you know centuries ago and little insights into you know just things like what did people buy what it, oh it's really fascinating it's, it's a great book i would recommend it to anybody yeah. it's interesting the whole thing about that because language is also part of that isn't it if you if you lose yeah. touch with a, a bit more of uh, you know the language of your of your country then you also lose touch with the history side of it you, yes. you know my yeah. I mean, partly I'm saying that because um, I think I said to you uh, before we came on air, I've been I've been uh, doing the Duolingo Gaelic course, and an English uh, American Scot friend of mine, who by training is a linguist, when she mm -hmm. moves to Scotland, it was perfectly natural for her. She just started to learn Gaelic, and mm -hmm. she's she's a fluent speaker now, so she's doing a wee class for myself, and we're all friends. But you know, even just when I kind of realised that. Um, uh, okay, so the Gaelic word for trousers is breakish, mm -hmm. and and my I don't use the words breeks very obvious, uh -huh. but it's obvious very often. But it's the same word. And then yeah. I think about my uh, one set of my grandparents um, who were from um, near near Brechin and Montrose, that area, far, farming farming kind of background. And I've I've completely lost touch with how they spoke. And um, when they were when they were uh, way off the farm and retired, they got visited by the people from the Scots Language Project at mm -hmm. Edinburgh University, who would uh -huh. just come to the house mm -hmm. at the time Granny and Granddad stayed with my parents. So, so mm -hmm. the folk from the uni would just just come to the house and they'd sit and chat to them. It was all recorded, and they'd say, and then they'd say, "What would you use if you were trying to say that? Would you use that word or that word?" <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Granny enjoyed it because she just enjoyed the crack, but Granddad really, really enjoyed it. I mean, he thoroughly right. got into it. But mm -hmm. but all of that, I mean, certainly from my family, that that mm -hmm. kind of language background has gone. And one of the reasons, I mean, there's lots of reasons why I enjoy uh, Val's company. And one of them, one of them is that she's you're from a bit further north than than there Val, but you still got a bit of that um that that kind of language that you yeah, and I just love it. It's great. It's been sort of knocked out of me a bit, you know, like it was at school you weren't allowed to speak Doric. Um yeah. and when I came to Glasgow I think I've definitely 
sort of, I mean, I've lived here since 1973, so, but when I go back to Bamshire, I do speak uh -huh, more yeah. broad, even, even yeah. on the phone, I would probably speak, um, like, I still say breeks. Yeah. I use the word, where's my, where's my breeks? <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, or where's my sheen? Do you know what sheen are? Anyway, see, see, while we're talking about language, maybe we could have a little musical interlude Marlene because one of your choices we asked Alan and Vivian for some musical choices and one of while Marlene's getting it ready we could maybe talk about uh, a little and it's about language it's a, a really quite a poignant and sad um a book and musical project connected with it called The Lost Words mm. which is a book about um, words that are disappearing from children's lang minds and lives, words like dandelion, otter, bramble, acorn, and that inspired a book and also a musical project with some of our finest musicians in mm. Scotland, like people like Kareem Colwart and Chris Drever. Um, Sorry, I shouldn't be talking about it. Maybe I'm a terrible blather. Maybe you would like to just tell us a little bit about this musical choice. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, the, the, I first came across it actually through Robert McFarlane, who wrote the, the poems or the incantations or whatever you want to call it, through because he's very again keen on language yeah. and language of the landscape because that's the oldest words you know that are the landscape. Mm -hmm. And it was when the Oxford English Junior Dictionary was being revised and they took out, well, I think it was over 200 words. And a lot of people thought, but wait a minute. Um, the reason they gave was that children's lives are no longer rural. They're urban, they're digital, they're indoor lives. And people saying, yes, but if you take away the words, you, you actually then deprive them of yeah. the language to use when they are outside. And um, I, I, the songs move me tremendously. I love Kareen Polwart and Julie Fowlis is in there as well. And it is it, the, the one that I selected is, is the, the Lost Words, The Blessing is, is in a way the most poignant one because it's, you know, how far down the road are we from having destroyed the natural world? You know, what can we do to turn back the tides and make mm -hmm. sure that we leave for our children a country, a landscape, yeah. you know, that is has these things in it. And I think a lot of positive things are going on. Yeah. There's lots of places where rivers are being cleaned, animals are coming back. And curiously, lockdown seems to have done that. These things with the goats and landed no yeah. and um, yeah. uh, people seeing bottlenose dolphins and everything again, which shows that if, if we take a step yeah. back, yeah. humans take a step back, they can. Um, but I, I felt that the lost words is a bit like a kind of clarion call to say, look, you know, mm. th this is serious. Um, yeah. We need to do something. And we have our children and their future to, to look for. And the music to me is just absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to listen to that now, Marlene. The, yeah, the here it goes. Welcome back to the Indie Live Radio daytime show. You're here with co-hosts myself, Valerie Gold, Marlene Halliday on the controls and uh, we've also, we're also here talking to crime fiction author Alan Martin and travel and history writer Vivian Martin and we're, we've been having a really interesting discussion about history and the role of history um, in our national identity and, 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 and individual identity, sorry I'll try and get my teeth in there and um, Alan um, has been talking to us, we're going to go back to talking a little bit about 
um, Alan's work. He, he, he was telling us about a novella that he's written involving um, his main character, Detective Inspector Angus Blue. But the main two novels, both of which uh, myself and Marlene have been reading, um, I've read The Pete Dead, the first one, and Marlene is reading it now. And I've also just finished the second novel, The Dead of Jura. And one thing that's very apparent is the it's very, very political. There's a lot of political um, implications in there. So, um, Alan, would you like to comment on that? Um, that that's not very usual in crime fiction to be so political. No, um, I think there's a, there's a, hmm, no, I'm going to have to be careful here. There's, there's a lot of crime writing that is, that is very escapist. Yeah, um, you know yeah. The, the the crazed serial killer rushing around carving his initials on the dead bodies, um, or the cosy crime where you know somebody is murdered in the village square and it, it, it's all very jolly and that's good. Uh, and there are a lot of people who like that. Personally, I think the the biggest crimes that we have are not the man who steals a loaf of bread from a shop but the man who avoids paying uh, billions of pounds in tax, or the man who gives a contract for work to his pals, or the man who makes sure his employees don't have enough to live on. Those are the crimes, and the big, to me, the biggest crimes, because if those crimes weren't being committed, then the man wouldn't need to steal the loaf of bread from the shop. So. I think for me, crime is is in a, a different place from where a, a lot of other people's are, people are seeing it. Um, not just me, I have to say there's a very good Italian author called uh, Valerio Varese, uh, who writes in a kind of similar vein about, about corruption in high places. And it's interesting that in 10 years ago, we would have read uh, Varese's work and we would have said, oh yes, well, of course, that's Italy, everything's corrupt over there. You read his work now and you think, oh my goodness, this is just like it is here. Um, so there is a political dimension because I think that's where, that's where the crime is for me. Um, and the trouble with that, of course, is that when it's the powerful who are committing the crimes, then it's very difficult to pin anything on them. And sometimes it means that the, the, the policeman who seeks justice doesn't quite get all the bad guys. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's life. So in a sense, I'm kind of trying to look at where we really are and not where we would like to escape to. That's, that's, yeah. that's my view. And if you find me, if, if one day somebody comes to the house and shoots me on the doorstep, then... <laughs> you'll know that I must have got it right. <laughs> hope it doesn't come to that. <laughs> hope it doesn't come to that. Yeah. But going, going back to what you're saying, or you and Val would bring in about um, the, that political aspect. I mean, I, I mean, I, it's noticeable in, in the, 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 Pete, uh, the, the Pete Dead, but actually I, when, I, when I'm reading, whether it's crime or anything or any other kind of fiction, when I'm reading that and it's about this political situation in Scotland, the current one, um, well, you know, the last 20 years, actually, I really, I really appreciate that because, you know, I think when when that kind of um, 
aspects brought into fiction, it becomes part of the general discourse, doesn't it? And you yeah. can say something. Well, you say something in 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 the uh, you know you make quite a, it's quite a strong kind of. It's not a big part of the book. I mean, it's no, no. part of the the the, the storyline. But the, the when you bring in the thing about a possible. British studies module being taught in in schools throughout the UK, including Scotland. I mean, I come across that and I go, yeah, that because people who maybe don't keep up to date and aren't mm -hmm. online and aren't on Twitter, but they do read books. Yeah. Um, then, then they then that starts you thinking, and it's fiction, of course. It hasn't hasn't happened, let's say, no. so far. Um, but but I think that's interesting because it just gets it makes things alive for people. Um, yeah. Me included, but maybe people who, who who are just not you know they don't bother about so much about social media or or the or the their yeah. news sources the news sources don't kind of put that aspect yeah so yeah. I, I I really 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 like that yeah mm -hmm. actually I, um to, to the idea about when I was thinking the idea about having a British studies module being taught in schools I thought my first response was oh that would be fun. Because then all the granny and granddads could sit down with their kids and go, I actually, no, that's not quite right. That isn't actually what happened. <laughs> I, I like, in the dead Jura, I quite like the sort of Celtic camaraderie. I don't think I'm doing it, giving away anything by saying that at one point, Angus Blue makes a brief visit over to Ireland. I'm just going to, yeah. I don't think that's letting any, any plot. No, 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 he goes to Dublin, that's yeah, true. Yeah. And, um, and Dunleary as well, doesn't he? And yeah, that's right. And that sort of great camaraderie between um, the Scottish police and the Irish police, um, who are sort of um, united in their <laughs> uh, distaste for the for the UK English uh, force that they have to deal with. Mm. I think I thought that was quite. Um, that well, I, I I would have to correct you slightly because <laughs> oh, sorry, it, it's sorry. not that, that they don't have any sort of disregard or contempt for the, the English as such. It's not anti-English. I really no, have to say no, that. No, no. It, it's a particular branch of the yes. police force which yes. has a political agenda. That's and in true. fact, later on in the Dead of Jura, as you know, um, Angus Blue goes to England uh, and where he gets on, he, he works, gets on very well with uh, a local uh, police inspector in Bedfordshire. That's true. That's very true. Actually, I noticed that. So the it, it, it's not the Englishness, it's the, it's that particular, that particular the political agenda, political. yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. And then, of course, yeah. I'm glad you picked me up on that, Alan. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not, and then later on, of course, he goes to, to Germany and, uh, you know, there's, there's bits more happen over there, so it's becoming more international. <laughs> And you, in talking about Germany, I believe before the pandemic, yourself and Vivian, you quite regularly travel to Germany and to Estonia. Is that you? Is we that do. yeah, yeah? I mean, I, I like I said, I, I went to university to study French and German, uh, and then changed it to German and history, including Scottish history. So there was all my life. There's been a lot of coming and going. In fact, this is going to sound slightly strange, but. Um, when I was young, there was a German student came to stay with us in the summer. And I, at that point, didn't really know what a foreign language was. And I remember saying to her, 
do do the dogs in Germany understand German as well? <laughs> I'm thinking, gosh, your dogs must be so clever to speak a foreign and understand a foreign language. And that seems a lifetime ago. But there was this young woman that came for two or three years, took us youth hosteling, gave me a little notebook of German words and their English equivalents. And that sort of sparked it off. So, yes, we, we, we've been coming and going. My, our daughter's godmother is a Swiss friend. Um, and because I was the kind of German speaker, Alan wanted an interest that perhaps wasn't I'm going to say overshadowed by me. But so the Estonian connection came through a friend of mine, but he then went on to, to learn Estonian and, and that encouraged us to go and, and visit Estonia quite often. Oh. But one thing about Estonia, just going back actually to Elspeth King and museums and when she was at the People's Palace and then the Sterling Smith, was that because Estonia regained its independence in the 1990s, um, their their history, their understanding of themselves had been controlled by the Baltic Germans, by the Russians, by the Soviets, by the Nazis, by everybody but themselves. Mm. And on our last visit to Estonia, it was absolutely wonderful. We went to the whole brand new archives that we've got, beautiful new building. Um, they've got a brand new national museum and they, they have been given... You know, very few countries will ever get this. They have had the opportunity to say, right, we're starting from scratch. Who are we and what are we all about? And it's been such a wonderful experience for them to have mm. control uh, over their own history, their own past. And uh, very few pieces will ever get that. But it's been a real eye opener to what you can do. Yeah. Um, with your history and with understanding yourself and your identity and that's why I find that fascinating that aspect of what's happened in mm. Estonia and they, they've said you know this is getting their own museum their own history was the end of one very long journey yeah. but hopefully the start of the next one yeah you know so it's it's museums and, and is, is are important and that's a fantastic yeah. example of people having control over their own story yeah so. I've been, I've, I have seen quite a bit of um discussion negative publicity online about some Scottish exhibitions and museums saying that when the people in charge were not um, not that they weren't Scottish but that they weren't sufficiently um, a, acquainted with and understanding of Scottish history and culture that, they, that sometimes there were exhibitions put up for example about, about Scottish history you know where the things like the, the Highland clearances were mm -hmm. brushed out, you know, mm -hmm. and, or yeah. it, was, it was presented as, you know, uh, like economic migration, that people were doing it because they wanted to, not because they were forced off the land. I don't yeah. know if you get any views on that, M. Vivian, about well, the importance of... Remember my very first Scottish history tutorial, and this is going back a long time. And the guy came in with a, a helmet with horns on and said, "Right, the Vikings didn't actually have horned helmets. There, there, there are myths in history that we kind of swallow." And he said, at that point, he said, "Now there are myths, and some of the myths are part of our history." And he said, "Let's take the Highland clearances," and everybody kind of went, mm, "What's coming next?" And he was trying to push at that point the, the economic aspect that yes, people were leaving, and yes, people were leaving, um, but not in the way that the Highland clearances turned into. And in fact, my most 
recent article for iScot is, is looking at around Loch Torridon and just looking at you, you've got all these empty buildings, you've got empty schools. Where did the people go and why? Yeah. Um, and if you actually, this is where archives and museums are so important because if you go back to the original sources, you get the story of the people on the ground, not the nice airbrushed history that um, some people, naming no names, try and present. And it's a, what's a Jim Hunter's recent mm. book, Insurrection, mm. again, is looking at that terrible time in the mid-19th century when there'd been the famine in Ireland, but the, the potato blight also hit Scotland and desperate times, absolutely desperate times. So, yes, there were these things were pushing people off the land, but the, there was so much more. The putting up of rents, so people had to leave. It, this short tenure, you, you, there's a million and one ways landowners had yeah. and used to make life just untenable and unsustainable. And yes, a lot of the, particularly national museums, are very have been very bad at presenting what really happened. And I think, I think things are changing. I think they're getting better. I think more people as individuals are aware of, aware of what happened. There's a good source. This is a magazine called History Scotland, um, which we subscribe to. And it's written by... Some of them are academics, academic historians, but it's actually written by a lot of other people as well. And it's a really good starting point for getting to grips with some of these some of these issues um, and not just accepting the, 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 the wrong interpretations that we're given in some of the big institutions, which are still in the sway of people who, yeah, who don't understand. If you're part of a ruling class, a ruling elite, you've been brought up to think you know what's best for other people. You present that. You don't actually present the story mm. that, say, Elspeth King would have presented. Yeah. Um, so we, we need to be on our guard very much, but we also need to know what actually happened in order to come back with the argument and say, no, that's wrong. These mm. sources show these words written by that woman on that day when her house was burnt down. That's the reality. Mm. So it's what we know is so important that we educate ourselves and we know what really happened. Yes, indeed. Yeah. indeed. And, and I think sometimes, you know, if one way that you can, well, one way that I have, um, found myself connecting with with that whole side of Scottish history very deeply is just by walking so I, I had mm -hmm. a couple of holidays that were on a, a sailing holidays and one we landed on the seaward side of Ulva got off the boat went for a walk and you just walk through one little village after another you know just yeah. broken walls and if you if you look yeah. if you look at the walls they weren't just flung together they were what's left is really really solid and you know, obviously took a lot of effort on part. So you, you, you walk past, you, you walk past the ruined, walk past the ruined yeah. house, went in. There's just millstones lying around because yeah. that was that was where the ground the ground the barley presumably, and um, and that's very touching. I mean, I, I can be in that that landscape, and I I touch into a, an emotional response that goes very very deep into me, and, and I think partly it's added to because um I've, you know I had stories from a. As a, the grandparents that lived up in in Forfarshire about the the land as well, and I think maybe when people see that, hopefully some of us think, why was that? Oh yeah, the clearances, and and try and find out a bit more about it because it's tragic and it's heartbreaking when when you when you go and find out you know the as you say the more accurate the more accurate story of what happened. Yeah. 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 Sometimes if they leave, if if something is left. 
untouched, the, the history is so much more vivid. I'm thinking of um, when I was in France eh, not that long ago, my friend took me to Oradour sur Glan. I don't know if you've heard of Oradour sur Glan. It's a place um, not too far from Limoges in the Limousin. And it is a village, it's called a, what French call a village martyr, a martyred village. Mm -hmm. And it's basically the scene of a, uh -huh. a terrible atrocity mm -hmm. where um, hundreds of people were mm -hmm. killed. The men were all shot and the women and children oh, were yeah. up yeah. and and it was set on fire. Yeah. Yeah. And so rather that, so there's a new village has been built adjacent to it, but they've left the whole place untouched yeah. and, mm -hmm. and you visit it as a, you know, with, and the, with all the information and there's still like old burned out cars sitting there and it's very, very, yeah. um, you know, powerful, and, and that's that's been left there. I think, mm -hmm. and and, you, and it's not the only village martyr in France. There's quite a few where they have these memorials and plaques and so on. But that one is is particularly. Yeah. It's but not. That, it's that's so interesting. I was just going to say that these things, you know, yes, because otherwise we forget these things happen. We forget what people are capable of. And you do, it, similar things happened in parts of Germany as well, where they decided not to restore things because they wanted to say, this is what we are, this is what human beings are capable of. Yeah. And we don't want to revisit this. And it, and we do forget, we forget. Yeah. It just passes on, you know, and yeah. we get on with our lives. So that in, in some cases, I think that's a really good example because what happened there was just, it, it, yeah, you, you can hardly get your brain around it. It's so mm -hmm. barbaric, but... Yeah. You want to say, yeah, but it it, it happened and yeah. people are capable of doing that. So we need to know what happened in the past to try and stop it and happening again. What comes into my mind at the moment is just, sorry, Barbara, just briefly, is that the difference between that decision being taken deliberately, it's a deliberate decision to uh, keep that as was. What we've got in the Highlands is just yeah. neglect. And no, yeah, no yeah. one, no one said, "Oh, we'll leave that because at some yes. point in the future, you know, we want to." It was just left because no one thought it was important, and presumably the landowners didn't, and 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 no one thought it would ever come to anything. And and so maybe in a way, that's a little bit fortunate in some respects, is that those deserted villages are still there, and you can still walk through them and get a sense of people's lives just kind of by accident because no one thought it mattered. Well, and I think that's actually the key to the whole thing was that, you know, for the rich, for the landowners, the people didn't matter. What happened to them did not matter. And it's again, and funny, it does tie in with my most recent article was saying, you know, change happens. The, you know, there's, yeah. there's, there's development, science, technology. The change in itself is not the bad thing. It's how it's managed by the people who have the power, who have the wealth. And history does unfortunately show that an awful lot of the time it's not well managed it's not managed for the benefit of the people it actually affects mm -hmm. and the fact that things are just left kind of derelict it, it, we still have a terrible problem with land ownership in scotland i think yeah. you know that yeah. we think yeah, we're making progress and with the right to roam and the 2004 act i think it was you know i thought this is good we're actually really making progress we're coming into being a modern european state and an awful lot of things seem to have stalled and i think that's very unfortunate um the whole second home things i put somebody put leslie ridiff made a comment uh, on twitter 
And I said, well, in Switzerland, they manage it differently. And in Switzerland, you, you can't just turn up, buy a property and disappear for most of, the year. most of the year. And there's only certain areas that people who are not resident can buy property. And they tend to be in tourist areas. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be a kind of, you can buy maybe a chalet. So they, they, their property, their land is there for the people who live there. And I'm sure Leslie Riddock's talked a lot about this sort of thing in the Scandinavian countries and the same. Mm -hmm. In Scotland, we are in a different century altogether. I mean, the fact that so few people own the land and can still decide what happens to it is, for my friends in Switzerland and Germany keep going, why, why in Scotland do you let this happen? Yeah. And that is a humdinger of a question. And That's something that, as you say, Leslie Riddick and people like Andy Whiteman, you know, yes. very caught yeah. on. And mm -hmm. it's definitely something that um, a lot of people in the independence movement want to see. Yeah. On. But we're con time is marching on. You've been with us for nearly an hour now. We're hoping that you might stay with us a wee bit longer while we get our next guest in and we could maybe... Are you okay to stay with us? Or yeah, 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 absolutely. Welcome back to IndieLive.radio to the second hour of our programme today on a sunny Glasgow Friday I was going to say Friday morning, but it's now Friday afternoon. So the first, if you've been listening into the first half of our show, we've been really enjoying talking to a writers, um, Vivian Martin and Alan Martin. And now we have another guest, and we're delighted that Alan and Vivian are going to stay with us, whether they'll get to speak at all, we're not sure. <laughs> because we have got the very loquacious and charming and very hirsute Mike Black, you can't see him, but he's got his Santa Claus beard. Mike Blackshaw, the inimitable Mike Blackshaw from the fantastic Edinburgh Yes Hub. And we're delighted to have you with us here today. Hi, Mike. Hi there. I gather you said that they might not be able to speak. It's because I always do all the speaking. <laughs> I'm, being dead, I'm being dead cheeky. I've got a cheek to talk, Mike. No, good. Well, I was going to say yes. I agree with that. <laughs> The phone so, lines were very buzzing, agreeing with me. <laughs> so we're delighted to see you, and we'd like you to start off just telling us how things have been going during lockdown, okay. you know, about well, the Edinburgh Yes Hub. Yeah, lockdown, of course, has uh, made us have to change a little bit. We can't have meetings anymore. Uh, we hardly have people uh, just drop in for a coffee as we used to do. Uh, we've had to really up our, uh, our uh, uh, community work, as in food bank collections and things of that nature, because things, have, as you know, have become very difficult in, in a lot of uh, schemes and poor areas. So we've managed to, uh, to start doing that. And then suddenly it was quite obvious that we were going to have a shortfall in paying the bills. Uh, so we decided to open up a, uh, we had some money, so we decided to um, uh, open up a, a Scottish produce centre where we sell Scottish produce. We're uh, in our second week. Uh, we've had days with no customers and days with lots of customers, depending on weather. And basically the rule is we'll sell uh, produce made in Scotland. Uh, and also uh, produce from uh, Scottish distributors, which is also uh, uh, has a Scottish base. Uh, 
we had a bit of a problem trying to find good preserves, jams, honeys and relishes and things of that nature. Uh, we had two uh, small local companies refuse to deal with us because of political reasons, uh, which I found very strange, uh, considering we were there to help them as well. But uh, we've got a, a good selection of, uh, uh, should I say, uh, sweet tooth items, because um, uh, I think uh, Scotland has got a lot of... Uh, uh, lovely small companies like Cobbs, Mackay's, uh, Rosses of Edinburgh and things of that nature. Um, and also we've started to sell, and quite uh, in decent quantities, something that I haven't seen for 30, 40 years, sugar mice. Oh. You know, <laughs> uh, and uh, beautiful, beautiful things. Um, and, you know... It's surprising when you go through, especially some of the catalogues, uh, the complete range of produce we produce in Scotland. Yeah. You know, it's quite remarkable, to be perfectly honest with you. Something that even I, who uh, I've always been someone who tries to buy uh, uh, Scottish produce, and it's it's um, it's quite remarkable, but. One thing I will come and say uh, is I sourced a company, Dundee, Broughty Ferry area, uh, Mackay's, who do jams and preserves, but they do them for supermarkets as well. But they also have uh, a range which they do to small outlets uh, and, uh, and more um, boutique jars and some stuff of that nature. So I, I told him what our ethos was, and he said, right, I'll tell you something. Um, uh, we worked out that a, uh, uh, to sell you a jar of jam, when it goes on your shelves, it's actually touched 17 hands of people who are uh, different people who are employed. And it made me realize, you're right, people make jars. People make the lids for the jars. People make the labels for the jars. You know, people obviously have to plant the fruit. People have to fertilize the fruit. People have to pick the fruit. And then the process, and then they've got the deliveries and everything else. And it suddenly uh, it brings home uh, that if we were probably more like the Japanese, and 90% of all our purchases were Japanese products, maybe uh, uh, the Scottish economy would... Uh, uh, be a little bit more vibrant and not more uh, reliant on uh, on uh, trading with the rest of the world. You know, trading's great. Don't get me wrong. That's where money comes from, and that's where everything else. But um, if you're self-sufficient, then the, the uh, every penny you make out of trading is a profit. Mm -hmm. You know. I, one, of the, I, one of the things I, I discovered recently from from um, from reading the Commonweal um, Resilient Scotland Plan, uh, Mike, uh, was that Scotland is self-sufficient in calories. That we produce the number of the amount of calories that the nation needs to consume, we produce that amount of calories. Mm -hmm. We just don't produce it in the right form. So. A lot of it is probably in whiskey, actually, Alan. Um, <laughs> but um, 
uh, I, I'm, I'm saying that because anyone who's read Alan's books will know that there's quite a lot of um, whiskey sampling that goes on uh, in them. But so we, we do, you know, in a way we're self-sufficient, but we don't grow the kind of things that we actually eat. So it's going to take a long time before we could really ever be properly self-sufficient. And we're... I, I think if you uh, think about it, what do you eat that we don't produce? How about that? I eat fish. We produce it. I, yeah, I don't go, eat meat. Sure, but if you go into the supermarkets, I mean, I go into supermarkets. Yeah. One of the things I quite like is sprouting broccoli. Um, yeah. I, I usually don't buy it because it comes from Peru or Mexico mm -hmm. or Kenya. And in a way, you know, as you said, trade's necessary. And on the one hand, I'd be happy to support, you know, Kenyan farmers. Mm -hmm. But actually, I do not want to be eating something that we could grow in this country if you used, um, hot, uh, you know, glass houses or hydroponics. But we just mm -hmm. don't do it because... Well, frankly, we don't do it because we don't have control of our land. So mm -hmm. there's yeah. lots and lots of things that we could grow, but we don't, and we bring them Absolutely. in from the other side of oh, the I world. I agree. What I will say is there's a, a, a farm outside of Cooper that grows broccoli. Uh, you're right, it's under tunnels, but uh, it, uh, it grows broccoli. It uh, can't sell it to supermarkets. Exactly. exactly. It can only sell it at local farmer markets. Yep. And, uh, and outlets. So it's not always that we can't have the food or grow the food. We just don't have the way of putting it on our our shelves, mainly because we have now become uh, 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 a shopping nation with supermarkets control. Mm -hmm. You know, where do you find a where do you find a butcher nowadays? It's also you know. to do with purchasing purchasing decisions as well, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, one thing it made, makes me really mad, although it hasn't for a while because I haven't been travelling, obviously, but it's when you travel abroad and you go to the airport. Now, I've, I've, I've flown from most Scottish airports, Prestwick, Aberdeen, Edinburgh, Glasgow, and if you buy water, it's very hard to buy. In fact, it's impossible, or it was when I the last time I flew, to get any a bottle of Scottish water, all the water that they sell, and it's often with a free, just to add insult to injury, a free copy of the Daily Telegraph, <laughs> either Buxton water from England yeah. or um, Evian or something, or Vitel, um, either, you know, and I've noticed that a few times and I've actually said to the, in the shop, have you got any Scottish water? You only have English or French water here. And that, I mean, for people coming through the airport from other countries. Mm -hmm. I mean, water is one of the things that we've got in abundance in Scotland. Yeah. Um, and I just find that absolutely shocking, really. And that's a purchasing decision by the airports, isn't it? Yeah. We have 17 uh, uh, companies in Scotland producing water. Oh. You know, some of the very big ones, you know, but... Uh, so yeah. 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 Anyway, it, so... Um, no, no, That's what, anyway. Yeah, so um, is it going well? The well, it, it, it's very it's very patchy. Uh, we uh, are hoping to get a, a leaflet out in the next day or so. We've just had it printed to go into local community because there is a, a double-edged sword here. Apart from it wanting to keep us uh, uh, um, um, 
sorry, in, in the red or the black, I should say, uh, it is obviously we would like to be a community base. We we are based in a in a, a very serious no area. Uh, we're also in the constituency of Edinburgh South. Uh, um, uh, which uh, shows you we don't even have representation at uh, Westminster and, uh, and never have. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, a year ago, people used to walk on the other side of the street, but now they come and say hello and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, things are meaning, mainly because they can see we don't have two heads. Yeah. You know, Brexit, of course, has helped tremendously in yeah. this area. Uh, and to be honest with you, um, Johnson's inability to uh, uh, to be a, a decent human being, I think, also helps. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of a lot of things are happening. I mean, I don't want to bring discord into it, but there's an awful lot of frustration and discord within the Yes movement at the moment. Uh, an awful lot of it uh, directed directly to the SNP, be it they deserve it or not. But the fact is, regardless of that, membership of the SNP is rising on a weekly basis and, and support for independence and the SNP is rising. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, somebody must be, sometimes I think by doing nothing, you can actually uh, achieve your aim. You know, I started a project uh, 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 independence in small steps with one giant leap, you know, and uh, uh, you know, and I think that w that's how it will happen. Mm. I think I've gone off your subject. My apologies. No, really. <laughs> I was wondering if Alan and Vivian, if you've got any sort of reactions to the idea about the Scottish produce and and doing and. Well, yeah, I, I think that's such a good idea and. When, when the libraries were open and I was running a book group and I was saying that we need to support where we are, there is a local butcher, there is a local fishmonger. And I was saying, but these people won't survive unless we support them. And the response I got from basically wealthy women was, oh, but I can get it cheaper in a supermarket. And I said, but yes, yeah, so you can get it cheaper in a supermarket, but you are then letting a local business die. And if we want to be able to feed ourselves and clothe ourselves, then we have to have these local businesses. But it was this business of, well, I can get it cheaper somewhere yeah. else. And that yeah. you were saying about the, the, the power that the supermarkets have is that yeah. they can beat down the prices of you know, the milk farmers. They can beat down the prices of everybody. That we really have to put our money where our mouths are and, and support where it exists. That, I was really taken, Mike, when I saw your thing about the Christmas hampers and that, and I thought, that's a brilliant idea because these people can't mm -hmm. easily get the outlets uh, from in the big shops. So, But this is something we can get. We, we're buying more online as it is. So mm -hmm. this is a, a great idea for Christmas, and I think mm -hmm. it's super what you're doing. I, I, I put a simple tweet out, just a simple tweet. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know why I said it, but I did, that we're, we're going to do some hampers this year. And I got, uh, within an hour, 38 people come back and say, keep me informed, yeah. let me know what's happening. Mm -hmm. You know, to the extent now that uh, I've sourced uh, baskets, because obviously a hamper has to have a basket. Mm -hmm. And when I get our jams, preserves and honeys in, I'll start uh, uh, making them up. 
um, I'll make them up in the in in a way where they're affordable, where you you know, not like the old Christmas hamper and the old uh, uh, Christmas stocking fillers, where you add up what the chocolate costs and suddenly you're paying double the price. It won't be that, you know, because that's not what we need to do. We need to to sell them. But to go back to your supermarket point, you're you're absolutely right. But I think we must uh, support people like Aldi and Lidl with their Scottish sections Mm -hmm. because that forces the other supermarkets because Aldi and Lidl are forcing other markets to bring their prices down and do special price aisles, you know. Uh, So so commercial pressure does work there. Mm -hmm. I went into Aldi the other day uh, and I was really having a look at their Scottish produce. I was spying. I was, you know, and, uh, and some of it is some of it is very good, and some of it, to be honest with you, is the old, uh, high, you know, Heinz bean tin idea. The Heinz beans don't just make Heinz beans, you know, they make beans for other companies with other labels. But it is Heinz beans, you know, and uh, a lot of stuffs like that. A lot of their oat cakes with Aldi printed all over Scottish produce. In fact, it's Nance. You know, yeah. it's just in a different box, but that's okay. You know, that's okay. I mean, that's that's good. And I think um, uh, we have to be a little bit more dominant. Uh, uh, and some, as I said, as you say, support the local. I mean, do you know in Edinburgh? You know, I only I only know of five butchers left in Edinburgh. Mm. You know, there's only there's only a, uh, there's under ten fishmongers. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, in, but I mean that's just incredible. I mean there was a there was a butcher in every every shopping area, every centre at one stage. Mm-hmm. Now I spoke to the butcher who closed down for us. Now he closed down not for economic reasons. He was all right. He closed down because he was retiring, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, he um, uh, and but he he, um, uh, he his argument was yes. You can go to the supermarket and you can buy a cheap cut. But that's what it is, a cheap cut. Yeah. You know, um, you know. he said, uh, how do you cook my meat? I mean, let's try, you have a roast beef from a supermarket and a roast beef from a butcher. He said, uh, you've got a lot more of a roast beef after you cooked it from a butcher than you yes. do from a man. <laughs> because... You know, I'm sorry, uh, cattle and and thing we did, uh, they are preserved with uh, preservatives and water. Mm-hmm. Mike, you know. Mike, do you think um, yeah. do you think it's going to be? I can see that supporting local businesses that's definitely yeah. one way to to try to do what what your attempt what you're doing with the with the shop, yeah. which sounds great. I mean, a bit more broadly, do you think it's going to be even possible for us to be able to? Uh, track and trace, to use a current term, track and trace Scottish produced produce once the implications of the internal market bill filter through the land? The internal market bill, I understand the reason why Westminster wishes to do it. I'll be honest with you, I'm not 100% sure that it's to uh, stymie uh, the devolved uh, issues, although it will. You know, it's a consequence of it. Uh, the problem, I think, is 
that what will happen and what has always happened is the dominance will dominate. And, uh, you know, England have decided for some reason, I'm not sure, to get rid of the English flag and replace everything with the Union Jack. And I think that will continue to dominate. And I think the, uh, the internal market will make uh, uh, Scottish farmers a lot poorer and a lot poorer uh, Scottish farmers means that more will go out of business and that will probably mean an awful lot less uh, uh, Scottish produce being produced. You know, yeah. I mean, you can't you can't put Ang uh, Aberdeen Angus on the table if there is no herds of Aberdeen Angus, you know. And there wouldn't be if there wasn't uh, farmers weren't making money and being supported to do so. Um, I, I'm sorry, uh, you know, I have for years uh, railed against uh, globalization with, uh, with companies uh, uh, making, uh, uh, global companies making masses of money by basically screwing everyone they can do and then not paying the taxes. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think it's just going to get worse. I mean, the reason we don't have electric cars in every single road and every single car is because for the last 20 years, petrol companies and car companies didn't want it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's nothing to do with uh, uh, the um, uh, uh, your brain is not working. It's nothing to do with the technology. We, they knew the technology 20 years ago. And it's the same with everything else. I mean, I have to say, I shop at Amazon. And I do so at times by saying, well, at least it's got Scottish jobs. Mm -hmm. But how many jobs are they really, really chopping out? You know, uh, because of their price cut, their, uh, their way of dealing. Mm -hmm. I mean... Um, by all accounts, Amazon's uh, profit margin on, on most of the things they sell direct is less than 1%, yeah. you know, because uh, of, the w of the way they trade. But, of course, 1% profit margin is not bad if you've got a trillion uh, pound turnover every year, you know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I've gone off the subject again. You're no, quite. No, that's what we're here for. To, to you're quite right. As soon as I open my mouth, I don't stop. Do you want to say something? Coming back to the food, I mean, a few years ago, things seemed to be going in a, a far better direction when people were talking about low carbon footprints. So instead yeah. of buying food that has travelled halfway around the world and all the rest of it, you buy yeah. local. And it seemed for a while that you know you could see on the labelling yeah. where it had come from, who produced it. And that, yeah, that now seems to have just, I don't know if that's gone altogether, but that seemed to be such a good thing. So it was far easier then to say, well, this was produced up the road um, and I will buy that one. Um, and that was that had the double benefit yeah. of benefiting mm -hmm. local farmers, but also the, the environment. Um, and yeah, I think I've lost, I've lost that. Do you not do you not think, Vivian, that that's down to the global companies realizing that this wasn't good for them? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But then we enough of us go along with it. I think that's absolutely. We do have response. You know, every action that we take, we have a responsibility for the decisions that we make and what we do. And it's 
that's that's the kind of crux of the matter. You know, we can vote with our feet and vote with our money, um, but it's sometimes hard to do. But persuading people that it's worth doing is worth doing. If 58% of uh, the Scots would vote for an independence referendum, and uh, sorry, yes, and an independence referendum, surely 58% of people could be persuaded to buy Scottish produce. Mm -hmm. Then the global companies would change because yeah. they're not selling. They would have to do. They'd have to bend yeah. over. They'd have to go and use Asia potatoes and and uh, five carrots and broccoli and uh, and uh, and everything. Also, also, I mean, I can't remember who mentioned land. Land reform is so important in what we do. Mm -hmm. You know. Uh, if I, I'm a long-term member of the SNP, uh, and uh, the, if the one thing that I'm so annoyed with them is, is their land reform bill was appalling. Mm -hmm. I know why they tried. They, they, they didn't want a legal challenge, so they, they brought it in in such a way where it could be amended, which would help in any legal challenge, and it basically wasn't. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I mean, uh, the... the We've got a few uh, uh, land buyouts coming up, which is good, uh, mainly because the Duke of Clue is wanting to get rid of uh, some of uh, some of the land. And a lot of people have said, oh, uh, you know, that's good because uh, he's trying to be moralistic about it. You know, nonsense. They've just run out of money. They need the cash. Yeah, you yeah. know, but that's good in its own way. So, um, but we need to, we need to do this and, Perth and Perthshire and uh, and uh, Inverness Shire and even Ross and Cromarty. I mean, there's some there's some land there where you can drive for for an hour and all you're getting is grouse moors or uh, you know just anyway. You know, we these these places used to have sheep on it at one stage. You know, uh, they used to have houses, people living there. Yeah. You know, I mean. Half of uh, the, um, uh, the Appalachian Trail in America uh, uh, is populated by Scots who were thrown out of Ross and Cromarty and Sutherland and places like that. You know, we haven't got over that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the other thing is people say, well, the land up there is, is not viable, it's not fertile <coughs> enough and the rest of it. But it, when it supported people, it yeah. was. And as soon as you get very quick, as soon as people are put off the land or leave the land, it's only a few years before drainage ditches fill up. It, it doesn't take long for a form of nature to come back and make the land infertile. That's but if correct. the land is worked, then it produces what people need. Because, you know, again, going back to my most recent article, I was looking at the, the most important thing for people in the past was food. You had to grow the food for you and your family to survive. But whoever owned the land had power over you. And you look back at, you know, a couple of hundred years and you look now mm. and you think some ways we have not moved on at all. Mm. If anything, we've got even worse. Um, mm. But the land becomes fertile if it's worked and it's yeah. maintained. And Absolutely. It's, yeah. 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 And there is a, a lesson here from uh, from Estonia, um, taking you back to Estonia, that after the Estonians first gained their independence, uh, one of the big issues was the fact that German landowners own most of the land. Now, the Estonians immediately passed a land reform, which took away all of the estates from the German landowners. They could stay provided 
that they lived on the land and they only got a maximum of 60 hectares. Um, most of them, of course, just buggered off back to Germany. But um, the point was that they bit, bit the bullet and they transformed people who had been landless peasants into farmers. And that was a, a huge and enormously beneficial change. But you've got to bite the bullet and be ready to tell, tell the landowners what's going to happen. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's that's really the crux of the whole matter, isn't it? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's land reform, though. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. I think that's yeah, I mean, a huge appetite for in Scotland. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, the Duke of Westminster can afford to lose uh, all of his Scottish lands, and he wouldn't he wouldn't cost him anything. He wouldn't cost him one percent of his income. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, but of course they don't want to lose anything. That's why they're rich. Yes. <laughs> yes. So we've talked a lot about the past and its crucial role. Let's let's we will be having to stop before too long. And I've totally really enjoyed talking to you all today, Mike, you, yourself, and also to Vivian and Alan. And um, so we've, we've focused on the past. Let's look to the future. How do, do you feel we're pushing at the door for independence with this? poll that came out with 58% and also the huge approval ratings for the Scottish Government and, and for Nicola Sturgeon personally, despite all the shenanigans that have been going on. What is your view? Do you think we're on the brink? Shall I come to yourself first, Alan, and then I'll come to Vivian and Mike? That's the, the way I've seen it on my screen. Alan, what do you think? I'm going to be quite cautious about this because uh, my view uh, is that the the strategy that uh, the SNP are pursuing is is a, a rather long term one. Mm -hmm. uh, I have no confidence that there will be uh, independence within the next two or three years. I think that what Nicola Sturgeon is doing is is gradually trying to get as much. Um, support as possible and that's partly done for her by Boris Johnson but partly by quietly dropping the more radical policies and moving into a sort of Tony Blair sort of position. Now mm. I think what's going to happen next is she knows that Boris will never agree to a, an S30 so sooner or later she will have a referendum but the point of that referendum Now, she's counting, and I'm just imagining this, she's counting on the fact that the next election for Westminster will lead to a hung parliament, and with 60 SNP MPs, she will hold the balance of power. I think she's then intending to say, okay, Keir, or whoever's in charge now, um, we'll support you to be Prime Minister, but here's the deal we want, and she will offer a deal which is almost the same as we are now. In other words, there won't be any border. There'll still be the same signs. We'll still use sterling. Uh, everything will be just the same, uh, well, except it's not really that I think that's the long-term plan, that no, people will be able to feel that nothing's different, oh, except there's a different flag on the town hall. Oh, my goodness, so that's, that's very... My, that's my view. <laughs> That's very depressing. You've, you've spoiled my day. <laughs> Vivian, do you agree with Alan? 
<laughs> Not totally, no. No, I, I, I live in hope and I'm more optimistic. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm long-term optimistic. Yeah, long-term optimistic. I mean, I do think what has worried me in recent years is the backing away from there was going to be land reform, there was going to be council tax reform, there was going to be pension reform, there was going to be, you know, social housing, rent, and, all, and a lot of these things haven't happened. And I think, yes, the SNP have moved to the centre and it does worry me that a, somebody like Bernie Higgins, I think that's his name, who's one of the Nicholas Sturgeon's advisors, who also runs the Duke of Buccleuse Estates. Now, part of me feels that the, the kind of radical edge that we had even, I don't know, even 10 years ago, five years yeah. ago, there was an awful lot of public ownership, a lot of real positive feelings about what the Scottish government was going to do. And it hasn't done them. And that, that does worry me. That, that does worry me. But I do think that the, the mood of the country, thanks again to Boris Johnson, to Brexit, but also to people learning more about what's going on, being more involved in politics. I think I think we're getting there. And I hope it's sooner rather than later. <laughs> so let's go to the third beer. Mike, what's your yeah. <laughs> Alan, you depressed me. I have to say, I have to say, you could be right though, uh, because the tactics are slowly, slowly, you know. Uh, but um, I'm reminded. I think it was Wilson that said, "A week is a long time in politics." Oh yeah. And uh, also, if you had said to me two days before the Berlin Wall come down that the Berlin Wall was coming down, I would have put you away yeah. into a, an institution. You know, it just wouldn't happen. Yeah. Um, the first thing, I think not all Tories are Johnson and some of Bowie and all these people. Some of them actually believe in constitutional rights and some believe in in uh, the right uh, uh, of democracy and there's an awful lot of uh, uh, Tory talk in their own constituencies in England regarding the Scottish question and this and uh, the a lot of them uh, state that it's uh, a democratic deficit that won't go away unless we find a way of making it go away and they are upset that all Johnson is doing is talking about it mm. as we are upset that all Nicholas doing is talking about it mm. and no disrespect I understand the reasons why but that's what she's doing what I'm more upset about with our uh, Scottish government, because I think it wouldn't do any harm to our position, uh, is we make radical statements like we'll have a, uh, a, a non-profit energy company. Yes. Where is it? Where is it? Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. we'll have an investment bank. Yeah. Where is it? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you can't trust me, but uh, I could form an investment bank tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't trust me, so it wouldn't do any good. But you understand, yeah, a yeah, country yeah. would do it, you yeah. know. And we, we're just not doing that. Now, I'm a great love uh, of uh, Leslie Riddock, mm -hmm. you know. I, I, and she comes out with the idea that we should, uh, in on a lot of occasions, the same with Ruth Wisher, come out with lots of things such as there's things that we can do ourselves. Yeah. Uh, that makes Scotland uh, uh, further towards independence. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have to wait and to be told to do that. Yeah, yeah. Yes, 
yeah, it's no, it's no good saying we'll have a referendum with only one side taking part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that doesn't work, mm-hmm. and and that's why uh, we 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 need Westminster to agree or partly agree what we're what's going to happen. You know, no other country in the world is going to come to a rescue and say, look, I support Scotland's independence. It just doesn't work like that. You know, we need to be so much more proactive. I mean, I remember our son who was saying that there's in fact, there's, you know, the Scottish government actually does have a lot more power, legislative power than it uses. And it, it could be already being far more radical. It, it yeah. doesn't need to wait for independence. And what does worry me is that, and because I live in a very, we live in a no area, and people say, well, what about my pension? What about the? And I keep thinking, I mentioned this at our local SNP group, why isn't there a fantastic roadmap being drawn up out there saying when we yeah. are independent, this, this will happen? happen. Now, we don't seem to have anything like that. And, and I said to in the group, well, what, what are we offering people? What does independence actually mean? And that's mm. why I think that's I'm really su- yeah, I, I'm surprised that, you know, OK, Nicola Sturgeon is, is concentrating on COVID and the pandemic. But she's got how many other ministers, MPs, MSPs, staffers? There's a whole world of people out there. And why they haven't drawn up here are, you know, five basic things that will happen in an independent Scotland. And yeah. we take that out and say to people, this is what we are offering. Yeah. And I, that, this is where I actually do kind of chime in with what Alan was saying. It worries me. Then, can I just say, I think you should be standing for Holyrood. There's a reason <laughs> there, I think. <laughs> I've been very, I find what you've been saying today so eloquent and powerful and these ideas you've come up with there are bang on the money and it's a brilliant place to stop. Um, we've <laughs> totally enjoyed having all of you and hearing all the different ideas about various subjects. Pleasure to talk to yourself, Mike, Vivian. So Alan Martin, please buy his the latest book, The Dead of Jura. You can find that online at Thunderpoint Press. Vivian, you can read her articles in iScot magazine and other places. Um, please support the Edinburgh Yes Hub. If you go onto their website, you'll find ways to donate and support their crowdfunder because they do a great job. So can I, on Marlene and I would like to thank you so much for taking part in the programme today. Yep. Thanks very much to all our guests.